What it do, friends? Thank you. You're welcome. <laughs> so this is a very special episode. You guys don't even know unless you do because you're the real OGs. But you probably don't. You so. don't. So we're going to tell you. Do you want to do the honors? No, I think you should. Okay. Well, I'm going to drum roll. Ready, ready, ready. It's our one year anniversary. Woo-hoo! So in honor of oh, our one no, year. No. <laughs> that was supposed to be my fireworks sound. <laughs> We're going to redo our first episode for y'all because we all know how, <laughs> <laughs> how bad that was. <laughs> Let's just say there's probably six times more downloads on that episode than any other episode we have. Uh, anyways. Anyways. But. So we're going to redo that. We're going to redo it. And, and, and we are just going to. Make it extra disturbing for you. Maybe. We'll see. It is us. So Brittany is going to do the honor and start first with her true crime. And if you remember what it is. Cool. I didn't. <laughs> I didn't. She didn't. She thought she was doing paranormal, and I'm like, no, would, ma'am. Listen, I went to my notes, and I'm like, go to the very first episode. Okay, the very first paranormal that I planned on doing. I still plan on doing, but there's so much on it that I just haven't gone back to do it yet. It's stupid. I know. Whatever. So I have that one on there, and then I have episode two, and I'm like, wait a minute. Why does it say episode? Have I been? Have we been off this whole time on all of our numbers? Because we usually go by my number system, you know. Because Katie doesn't number things; she's the more organized one on everything else in life, except for our episode numbers. Yeah, I'm always like, wait, what I, are we? I on? don't know how that worked out, <laughs> but that's where we are. So, <laughs> so I'm looking at my episodes and I'm like, oh fuck, right? Mm-hmm. And then Katie's like. No, what are you talking about? I'm doing paranormal. Why would you be doing this? And I'm like, I was like, did you oh, not oh. like go back on like no. our website and gonna, see what number I was just one? Gonna wing it, okay. Anywho. I thought that the number one was freaking Goatman's Bridge. So true that's that. another thing. <laughs> true that, and we hadn't even covered it. No, we no, it was number one. It was the original number one. But then we got scared and because when you of did Gardetto. That's I don't, even, I don't even know what Gardetto the is. Gard- His name's not really Gardetto. It was that the the killer, the raper in California or whatever that raped Oh. Him. And we, I kept calling him Gardetto because his name was like Gartuo or Gar- uh, gotcha. Gar- whatever the Anyways, hell his name is. We're Anyways. just going to go into. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> Nobody so cares here about we are, this. friends. <laughs> we're going to redo shit because we fuck it up. And now you know why because I'm a dingus. Okay, so. Let's let's uh give you a little what is the what, what am I thinking of under um words mouth words <laughs> uh like the setting behind why I chose this story first I guess that makes sense the backstory backstory that's the words okay wow. yeah mm-hmm that's where we're at right that now just happened that totally just happened so. do we need to redo this a third time <laughs> uh, maybe and for all the people that i've suggested to come listen to us recently hey i hope you like it okay so for those of you who are just joining us or who don't know us and are our friends we are from a place called gainesville texas we no longer live there, so it is safe for us to say that we are from there. <laughs> yeah. We do not live there any longer. And for anyone who knows anything about Gainesville, 
we, we don't live there for a reason. Anyways, okay. So <laughs> just throwing that out there. So my for my first true crime story, I thought, you know, I stumbled across this this story and it was just kismet. I was like, I have to do this for my first true crime. Anyways. All right. So we're in Gainesville, Texas, right? What are and, your sources? Uh, UPI.com, Unsolved Mysteries, and APNews.com. Good job. So, okay. One of the people who were involved worked at the zoo, the Frank Buck Zoo in Gainesville. And when I was a little girl, this was pre-Katie days, mostly, when I was an only child and everybody loved me. Um, <laughs> we would always go. That was like our thing. It was very cheap. And it was like my mom would take me all the time during the day, like when dad was at work and whatever. We just always went there. And our great uncle used to be one of the zookeepers there. And he was actually killed by one of the elephants. Sad day. But... So it was like a, like, this zoo meant something to me. You know what I mean? It wasn't just like a zoo. Like, I grew up there. I love animals. So it was like my first, like, mm-hmm. we used to go there for breakfast every morning, whatever, right? So they went is, there a lot. Yeah. So this is the whole reasoning behind why I thought this is a good idea story. So we're just going to get into the murder. Takes okay? us back to the first days. Okay. Yeah, I know, right? Where my brain doesn't work. It still doesn't. It hasn't changed. All right, picture it. It's Gainesville, 1988, March 7th, right? Mm-hmm. Now, Gainesville is a very small t- small town. Mm-hmm. There's really not a lot to do there. And um, a lot of people end up getting in trouble. We're just going to say that. There's a lot of drugs in this town. Um, and people are hoodlums. And when, you know, and th- this is back in 1988 when there is far less things to do then than there is now. Right. You know, it's not like you have a cell phone where you can pretend there's shit going on in your life. Like there really <laughs> isn't anything going on. So we've got these two two teens, right? And uh, they they decided that they were so bored they were going to go on a murder spree. <laughs> That's cool. That's cool. Okay, Good choices. so at around 10 a.m., the suspects were seen in Gainesville looking around a car belonging to the father-in-law of Tommy Matthews and Kenny Davis. Tommy and Kenny confronted the teens because obviously they're hoodlum-looking kids and like, what are you Being doing? Suspicious. Yeah, super suspicious. And they said they were looking to use a phone. Again, this is way pre-cell phone days. Kenny said that there was no phone in the car. So why are you looking in there, bud? Yeah. Um, you got to go. So he told them to go. And obviously they left. They didn't like argue or fight because mm-hmm. they're kids and they just got called out. They got caught and were expecting caught. it. And like, they're like, yeah. okay, daddy, we'll leave. What's my deal with daddy? I don't know. I have daddy issues apparently. Anyway. <laughs> so an hour later and about 200 feet from where they were seen, um, 23-year-old Deanna Woodard returned to her trailer and was brutally stabbed and nearly decapitated with an axe. The killers also left her one-year-old son, Corey, abandoned in the trailer and then stole her blue Thunderbird, drove it 60 miles south, and ditched it in an unknown location at this point. Okay. They then went uh, to a nearby Farmsville farmhouse belonging to an 85-year-old Cecil Floyd Morrison and his 62-year-old son, Cecil Leonard Morrison. They broke into the house and beat and tortured the men for over an hour because, you know, they were bored. Then they shot them to death with one of Deanna's guns. 
They then stole Morrison's beige Chevrolet pickup truck, which they drove into a lake at around 9 p.m. And they also threw Deanna's guns into into the truck and into the lake. So that's just the beginning, mm-hmm. in case you're wondering. Crossing over into Arkansas, a witness sees them multiple times walking along a highway. At 10 p.m., the two men arrived at a trailer in Saratoga owned by Kenneth Olden, where they asked for help for their broken-down truck. Kenny's girlfriend, Brenda, witnessed them leaving with him. A few minutes later, they shot and killed him once again, stealing a vehicle, this time a 1983 Mustang, which they proceeded to dump um, in a creek in Brown Springs, Oklahoma. Footprints were found in the mud near the car. Nothing about these deaths and thefts made any sense to Texas, Arkansas, and Oklahoma State Police. The only clue to the killer's identities is an earring that they left in Cecil Morris's truck. Okay. The single earring. Single earring. And it was kind of a weird one, if I remember correctly. It was like an 80s. Like, yeah, it was like golden. Like, yeah. like I feel like something you would see like an 80s vampire movie mm-hmm. dude wearing. Yeah. Like, I'm a cool badass. Look at my earring. <laughs> Just kidding. I don't know. <laughs> Nothing. Uh, so, R.T. Lee Renfro II came forward claiming claiming that he had owned it but had given it to another boy named John Cowell who had lived just 200 yards from Deanna's trailer. I don't know. However, the Cowell family had just moved a month before the murders. John claimed that he did not know what happened to the earring. Authorities did, however, find out that two teens matching the killer's description were seen walking away from the Caldwell home on the morning of the murders. Suspicious. Authorities are still searching for the killers as they fear that they may strike again. Yeah. I mean, you don't know. You don't know what they're doing, what's on their mind, who they are in their life. Crazy. Okay. So, according to... Hempstead County Sheriff Don Worthy in Hope, Arkansas, he says they're just brutal murders is what they are. And I guess you'd have to say that they're being committed by a couple of kids. Some people saw them and they said they couldn't have been older than 18 or 20. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. The body of the first victim, Deanna Andrews Woodard, 23, again, was in her mobile home. By It was found by her husband when he came home from work at about 1 p.m. So let's remember, she was killed at around 10 a.m. This is 1 p.m. Mm-hmm. And there's a little bitty baby, little that's bitty been nugget who's been in there with his dead mommy all day. That's so bad. Super bad. Just because they were bored. <laughs> Justice of the Peace Bill Freeman said that her throat had been cut, apparently with a bloodied hatchet found near her body. An autopsy was ordered to determine the time and cause of death. Cook County Sheriff John Aston. I feel like I should find him and be like, yo, give me the deets, mister. If he's alive still. I mean, this is only the 80s. That's like 40 years ago, bro. Shut the fuck up. If he was like 40 no, at the time. that is so fucking rude of you. <laughs> That's so rude of you. <laughs> the 80s is not 40 years ago. Okay, you keep telling yourself that. Oh, fuck. Okay. Mm-hmm. Ew. That is really depressing. I'm sorry. Okay, so this might be our one-year anniversary, but I just remember that I'm old as fuck. 
Same. I'm going to be 26 this year. Shut up. At least you're still in your 20s. <sighs> Whatever. Okay. So if you're young, just love it. Just love being young because then one day you're going to be old and the 80s is going to be 40 years ago. Mm-hmm. Gross. Anyways. <laughs> okay. So he said that there were no signs of forced entry, but it was apparent that there had been signs of a struggle in the residence. There was broken glass um, in the room and the mirror was off the wall. A sheriff's deputy said that the killers took a shotgun and a car, as we said. And this is the lady. The reason why, you know, I found this to be intriguing is because she worked at the Frank Buck Zoo. She was a, um, a zookeeper there, which makes me very sad. So, and again, the car had not yet been recovered. The two men are also suspected of killing the two, the two older gentlemen in their, their place, their farmhouse. Medical examiner has given us information that besides both being beaten with a tire iron and wooden club, both were shot. So that's how they killed these older men. Mm-hmm. Said Sergeant, or I'm sorry, Sheriff Sergeant Anthony Hancock. The elder man was shot in the back of the head with a small gauge shotgun. The younger was shot in the head in the chest with a small caliber pistol. Hancock said investigators have nothing in terms of motive for the killings. The bodies were found late Monday night after their truck was discovered in Lake Millwood near Hope, Arkansas, located just off of Interstate 30 near the Texas line and about 200 miles east of Farmersville. Um, investigators believed that the suspects walked for about three quarters of a mile from where the truck was found um, to the home of Kenneth, who was the one that they they stole the Mustang from, mm-hmm. uh, who was 34, and he was found Tuesday, and he was beaten and shot to death. His car was found also on Tuesday in Marietta, Oklahoma, which is literally just a hop, skip, and jump away from Gainesville. It's just over the river. But it's also 250 miles west of the Arkansas town. The killers passed several houses before they came to it. So apparently they were just looking for a vehicle. Like they weren't picking people. They were picking like joy rides, I guess. Yeah. I don't fucking know. Um, so on, now this is, I threw this in as like a little side piece. It's just like a little side note of something that happened in the investigation. So on March 12th of 1988, uh, in Hope, Arkansas, authorities released two men that they had described as prime suspects in this, you know, two-state killing spree. But they let them go after they passed lie detector tests, and their prints didn't match those on the weapon, and a witness failed to identify them. Authorities had planned to hold a hearing Friday night to determine if they had probable cause to hold the men in connection with four brutal slayings on Monday in Gainesville, Texas, Farmersville, Texas, and Saratoga, Arkansas. But when the two passed the lie detector test, the authorities canceled the hearing and agreed unanimously to let them go. The men were given tickets for a bus bound for Terre Haute, Indiana, the hometown of one of the guys. It was a misidentification is what it was. One of the men said, we fit the description, so what else can you say? It's not my fault somebody else out there looks like me. (laughs) The other man told the Dallas Morning News that he was terrified to learn that I was facing death row. I thought I wasn't going to die for something I didn't do. Mm -hmm. Prosecuting attorney Jim Hudson Jr. said that a man who reported having a run-in with the apparent killers the night of the Arkansas murder was unable Friday to identify the two men in custody. Their release leaves officials without a suspect in the slaying of Of all the victims. Yep, all the victims. So, okay. So now we're going to fast forward to February 1st of 1990. So this is two years later. 18-year-old William Glenn Henry, so he was 18 at this point, so at the time he would have been 16. Damn. Yeah. 
William Glenn Henry was arrested after his fingerprints matched those found in Kenneth's car. He soon identified his accomplice as 19-year-old Davy Lynn Crockett, which would have made him 17 at the time. Davy Crockett. <laughs> Davy. Come on, Davy. Uh, he was arrested nine days later. Crocker later led investigators to Deanna's car, so they finally found her Thunderbird. The most stunning part of their murder spree was that they committed the cold-blooded crimes just because they were bored, as I have said 47 times. They were bored. Henry pled guilty to three counts of first-degree murder and was sentenced to two consecutive life terms on April 21st. Just a few months later, Crockett was also sentenced to two life terms for the murders. Both are now serving their prison terms in Beto Correctional Facility near Tennessee Colony, Texas. Henry was denied parole in February 1st of 2005 and February 18th. Crockett was granted an additional 10 years for being in possession of a weapon. They were charged with murder with a deadly weapon, three counts, and then three counts of dirt, murder, dirter, murder with a deadly weapon, and then deadly weapon in penal institution. Do they get any Grand Theft Auto, did it say? No, which is strange. You would think they would, but I guess, I don't know. I don't mm. know why they didn't. They, I feel like they probably, they probably just had enough to. I mean, yeah, that was probably already. enough to lock them away. Okay. So yeah, that's my kill. That's my the Gainesville killer story. And don't judge us from where we come from. I'm just kidding. Everywhere has serial colors. Serial colors. Cal- serial colors. Every serial colors. Everybody loves colors. I'm just mm. kidding. Okay, but yeah, so we're gonna cut all that out. all right so we're just gonna hop into my paranormal it's the bell witch everyone remembers that story yeah if you don't well you're gonna gonna say aka what the blair witch is isn't that the same thing yeah kind of well it's like the same premise yeah so my i redid my story Brittany she lost not. her notes. Yeah, I don't know where they went. I still had mine. They were just shitty. <laughs> um, so I redid them. I got my information from the southernweekend.com, bellwitch.org, and Wikipedia. Wicka, wicka, what? No. <laughs> so in the early 1800s, John Bell moved his family from North Carolina to the Red River bottomland in Robertson County, Tennessee, settling in the Red River community which later became the present-day Adams, Tennessee. Bell purchased some land and a large house for his family. Over the next several years, he acquired more land, increasing his holdings to 328 acres. Jesus. And cleared a number of fields for planting. So back then, you know, you had to make your money with, like, farming and stuff. Lots of farming. He also became, became an elder of the Red River Baptist Church, John and his wife, Lucy, had three more children after moving to Tennessee. The Bells had a very happy and successful early life at the river, the Red River Settlement. Until <laughs> one day in 1817, John Bell was inspecting his cornfield when he encountered a strange-looking animal sitting in the middle of a corn row. Corn row. Shocked by the appearance, I just... Now figured out why they call them corn rolls. Rose. I feel so stupid. I've always wondered. <laughs> Thinking about it, is, I get it. I think this is why you guys listen to us. <laughs> anyways, I'm, I'm talking about the hairstyle, if you didn't catch on. 
I feel so dumb right but now. But can we also just make a note of this is why you I just avoid cornfields at all costs. I mean, just let's just remove okay, children of the let's, corn. Let's talk about how Brittany likes to torture little Katie. Okay. <laughs> so when we were young, she made me watch Children of the Corn. Okay. I don't know if you've watched that movie, but don't. So our grandparents live up in the mountains in New Mexico. Okay. Uh-huh. And they are surrounded by cornfields. So this little asshole thought it would be fun whenever we would go out on our little four-wheelers to drive me over to them and abandon me in front of cornfields. I came back, didn't I? Yeah. <laughs> she was not a nice sister. I was an up. asshole. I'm sorry. Anyways, okay. <laughs> I, back to our corn rose. Okay. So, John. Yeah. So John was shocked by the appearance of this animal, which had the body of a dog and the head of a rabbit. Belle shot at it several times. I'm sorry. But, like, why are we... I just don't understand our first instinct. Like, our first instinct is just to shoot at It's fight or flight. It's literally ingrained in but our if DNA. if it's just chilling there, if it's if coming it's at you, freaky fuck yeah. as fuck, though, and you don't know, you're like, oh, pew, pew, pew. Like, your brain just goes. It's just like, ah! Mm-hmm. You know? Is that what they do? I, I don't wish know. we had YouTube right now. <laughs> okay. So, the animal vanished after he shot at it. Same. This was the first documented manifestation of the entity. Belle thought nothing more of the incident, at least not until after dinner. That evening, the family began hearing beating sounds on the outside walls of their log home. The mysterious sounds continued with increased frequency and force each night. Bell and his sons often hurried outside to catch the culprit, but always returned empty-handed. In the weeks that followed, the Bell children began waking up frightened, complaining that rats were gnawing at their bedpost. Not long after that, the children began complaining of having their bed covers pulled from them and their pillows tossed onto the floor by a seemingly invisible entity. Mm-mm. Mm-mm. As time went on, the bells began hearing faint whispering voices, which too weak to understand, but sounded like a feeble old woman singing hymns. The encounter escalated, and the bells' youngest daughter, Betsy Bell, if we remember her. Yes, I remember Betsy. Poor Betsy. She began experiencing brutal encounters with the invisible entity. Oh, Betsy. It would pull her hair and slap her relentlessly. <laughs> often leaving welts and handprints on her face and body. I just really want to know what this little girl did to piss this bitch off so bad. Like, I know. She just how could you bitch be slapped. so mean to little bitty? Mm-hmm. The disturbances about which John Bell had vowed his family to secret finally escalated to the point that he shared his family trouble with his closest friend and neighbor, James Johnson. Skeptical at first, Johnson and his wife spent the night at the Bell's home. Things began peacefully, but once they retired for the evening, they were subjected to the same terrifying disturbances that the Bells had been experiencing. After their bed covers were yanked off and James was slapped, (laughs) he sprang out of bed exclaiming, In the name of the Lord, who are you and what do you want? The entity did not respond. (laughs) Gasp! Shock! (laughs) The rest of the night was peaceful. 
The next morning, Mr. Johnson explained to the Bells that the culprit was likely an evil spirit, the kind that the Bible talks about. Mm-hmm, that's right, friends. I'm sorry, but if I stay the night with somebody <laughs> and their house was, okay, haunted, and I understand that neighbors aren't like neighbors now where you're literally right next door, they're probably miles down the road, and this was before cars and stuff, so they couldn't just, like, leave. Yeah. <laughs> um. <laughs> So, <laughs> I feel like how would that be a, a peaceful evening the rest of the night? Even if nothing happened, like, I would like not be able to sleep. Tone of, I would not yeah. be able to sleep. Listen, I would literally listen. be paranoid and freaked out the whole when time. When I'm ready to go to fucking sleep, I'm ready to go to sleep. Okay, and if I got some someone, whether full on physical being or not, pulling off my blankets, there's gonna be hell to pay. Yeah. Don't pull off my blankets. Don't fuck with me. Don't touch my fan. <laughs> Let me fucking sleep or there will be war. Ghost or no ghost. Yeah. Same. The entity's voice strengthened over time and became loud and unmistakable. It sang hymns, quoted scripture, carried on intelligent conversation, and once even quoted word for word two sermons that were preached at the same time on the same day 13 miles apart. Word That's of, weird. Yes. Word of the supernatural phenomena soon spread outside the settlement, even to Nashville, where then-Major General Andrew Jackson became interested in the so-called Bell Witch. John Bell Jr., along with his brothers Drew Rebell and Jesse Bell, had fought under General Jackson in the Battle of New Orleans. A few years later, in 1819, Jackson heard about the disturbances at the Bell home and decided to pay a visit and investigate. As Jackson's entourage, consisting of several men, well-groomed horses, and a large wagon, approached the Bell property, the wagon jolted to a sudden stop. It had, became, it had become stuck in a muddy creek bed, and the horses were unable to pull it. At least that's what the men thought. After several minutes of cursing and trying to coax the horses into pulling the wagon, Jackson proclaimed, By the internal boys... That must be the Bell Witch. Then suddenly, a disembodied female voice told Jackson that they could proceed and that she would see them again later that evening. They were then able to proceed across the property up the lane into the Bell home. That evening, Jackson told old war stories while his entourage set up their tents in John and Lucy Bell's yard. Could you imagine, though, like being in that time? Like, this makes me think, I know this is stupid, this makes me think of True Blood, True Blood whenever, did you ever watch True Blood? No. Okay, well, for those of you who did and did not miss out on greatness, it's the episode, or the, the part when, um, oh my god, I just had a brain fart, what is his name? Bill. <laughs> when, when Bill, when he, it's like explaining how he became a vampire, mm-hmm. and I'm going to spoil alert because you're probably not going to watch it. But he was a part of the Civil War, and back then, like, he was, like, trying to make his way home or something, but he came across this woman and, like, stopped, because it was, like, the only house he had seen for miles and miles and miles and just needed food and rest and sleep, and she was the vampire that ended up, and she made him a vampire because he didn't try to seduce her, and all the other men had tried to take advantage of her. She killed them, but she didn't kill him. She made him a vampire. But it just reminds me of back then in those days when you just, like, would, I don't know, like, could you just imagine all these war people coming and being like, all right, we're going to set up camp at your home, and... 
Oh yeah, we're gonna like taking over and yeah. that be legal. Yeah. yeah. But this was more of like a welcome visit, I think. Oh, I mean, he's the, he was president. the president. I'm sure he's cool. <laughs> you, if you listen to Bailey Sarian's podcast, he's not a good president. But well, I've heard some not so great things myself. Sorry, I have eyes in my mouth. Thanks. <laughs> okay, so one of the men claimed to be a witch tamer. After several uneventful hours, he pulled out a shiny pistol and proclaimed that its silver bullet would kill any evil spirit that it came into contact with. He went on to say that the reason nothing had happened to them was because whatever had been haunting the bells was scared of his silver bullet. Yeah. She said. Sure. Um, Okay, it's gone. Okay, quit chewing in the microphone. (laughs) Okay. So, immediately the the man screamed. And began jerking his body in different directions, complaining that he was being struck with pins and beaten severely. A strong, swift kick to the man's posterior region from an invisible foot sent him out the front door. Angry, the entity spoke up and announced that there was yet another fraud in Jackson's party and that she would identify him the following evening. Now terrified, Jackson's men begged to leave the Bell Farm. Same. Jackson insisted on staying. He wanted to know who the other fraud was. The men eventually went outside to sleep in their tents while continuously begging Jackson to leave. What happened next is not clear, but Jackson and his entourage were spotted in nearby Springfield early the next morning, going back to Nashville. Some allege that Jackson's later proclaimed, I would rather fight the British at New Orleans than fight the Bell Witch. Jeez. The bell you witch, don't play with a witch. Uh-uh. The disturbances decreased after Betsy got engaged to a man. Okay, so we all know that she didn't like John Bell. No. No, and she didn't. And she not. relentlessly vowed to kill him. That makes me wonder, though. You know, because, like, if you're a dead witch, it's natural. People are going to come and live on your land. Like, duh. That's just going to happen, right? But right. I feel like, and I feel like... There hasn't been a bunch of crazy stuff that has happened super a lot since then. So maybe she just really did not like him. She just did not like him and knew he has some shady shit going on. <laughs> and she's like, listen, fucker, I'm going to run you out of here somehow. <laughs> um, so Bell started experiencing episodes of twitching in his face and difficulty swallowing for almost a year. And the malady grew worse with time. By the fall of 1820, his declining health had confined him to the house where the malicious entity continuously removed his shoes when he tried to walk. (laughs) When he tried to walk? Um, And slapped his face. When he recovered from his numerous seizures, her shrill voice was heard all over the farm cursing and chastising old Jack Bell, the nickname that she had given him. I feel it's kind of like, like... Like, she hates him, but there's, like, that teasing. Yeah. Like, Like, she's just got to, like, mess with him a little bit. Yeah. So, it's kind of, like, you kind of grow to, like, I don't know. I'm sure she gets quite a lot of amusement out of fucking with this fella. Yeah. (laughs) Old John Bell. I'm going to steal your shoes again. Let's see. Try to walk now. Okay. So, little Betsy. Oh, Betsy. We know that she picks on Betsy. Okay, so over time, Betsy Bell became interested in Joshua Gardner, a young man who lived nearby. With the blessings of their parents, they decided to marry. Everyone was happy about their engagement. Well, almost (laughs) everyone. (laughs) Um, The evil, mysterious entity became 
very furious and repeatedly ordered Betsy not to marry Joshua. <laughs> Betsy and Joshua's former school teacher, Professor Richard Powell, had been noticeably interested in Betsy for some time, which is gross. Super gross. You know we don't like pedophiles here. Um, we call you out. Yes, and he expressed interest in marrying her when she became older. So just imagine your school teacher being like, I really want to marry you when you're like of age. That's not creep status at all. Yeah. Although if you're from Carlsbad, that's probably something that's happened. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> um, we so, really like to out Carlsbad I juicy know. details on here, don't we? We I should know. probably not put that on there. Yeah. At least we're not saying names. No. Um, so by some accounts, Powell, who was 11 years um, Betsy's senior, was a student of the occult, ventriloquism, and he was a mathematical genius and well-versed in horticulture mm-hmm. and geology. So he was, he's just like got all kinds of interests. Mm-hmm. He was secretly married to a woman oh. in nearby Nashville, Esther Scott, during the time he lived and taught school at Red River. And perceived to be a happy-go-lucky bachelor. <laughs> and expressed his unwavering... And then that's when he expressed his unwavering fondness for Betsy Bell. So he's just kind of all over the place. Um, according to early accounts, Powell politely expressed his disappointment with Betsy's engagement to Joshua and wished her a long and prosperous marriage. There's that. So Betsy and Joshua could not go to the river the fields, or the cave to play without the entity nagging them, like, on their property. So she was, like, literally everywhere on the whole property. Yeah, she could, or, and she even, like, was not on the property. Like, she would follow Betsy into town and stuff. Oh, shithole. Oh, shithole. No, that's, <laughs> that's fun. I also wonder if, like, maybe Betsy was a shithead, too, like her dad. Maybe that's why he's just smacking her on, like, listen, maybe. you shit. Maybe. You get your act right. Don't marry that stupid boy. <laughs> God, I've been trying to tell you all these damn years. So the constant pressure was more than Betsy Bell could handle. And on Easter Monday of 1821, she met Joshua at the river and broke off the engagement. In April of 1821, shortly after Betsy had broken off their engagement, the entity visited John Bell's widow, Lucy. Let's go back to John. Oh, Johnny boy. Okay, no, the pipes, don't, don't. the pipes are calling. What was that? Sorry, my phone. I picked it up and it TikToked. Okay, I'm gonna. Okay. So the disturbances decreased after Betsy and Joshua's engagement ended, but the entity like focused all her attention on John now because Betsy did what she said and she didn't have to be mean to her anymore. Good girl. Um. So poor John died. Um, his last breath was on the morning of December 20th, 1820, after slipping into a coma a day earlier. Immediately after his death, his family found a vial of strange black liquid in the cupboard. John Jr. sprinkled two drops, oh, I forgot about this, <clears throat> onto their cat's tongue. Oh, I forgot about this too. The cat jumped up in the air, rolled oh, over in midair, and was dead when it hit the floor. That's so not okay. Poor kitty. The entity then exclaimed, I gave old Jack a big dose of that last night, which fixed him. (laughs) John Jr. tossed the mysterious vial into the fireplace, and when he did, it burst into bright blue flames and shot up the chimney. John Bell's funeral was one of the largest ever held in Robertson County, Tennessee. People attended from miles away, and three preachers... Two Methodists and one Baptist eulogized him. 
As the crowd of mourners began leaving the graveyard, the bell witch entity laughed and sang a song about a bottle of brandy. I'm sorry, did you just say eulogized them? Yeah, that's what it said. <laughs> eulogized? Yeah. I did not know that was a word. She eulogized him. Until just now. Yeah. She's singing about brandy, huh? Oh, yeah. Her fervent, her fervent singing didn't stop until the last mourner had left the graveyard. The entity's presence was almost non-existent after John Bell's demise, as though it had fulfilled its pur- pur- its purpose. She just didn't want him on her damn property. Right. He was a sketchy little sketch sketch. <laughs> okay, so... Um, Black Betty. Blam, blam, blam. Black Betty. Okay, so after... So in April of 1821... The entity visited Lucy Bell, which was John Bell's widow, and told her that it was leaving, but it would return in seven years. The entity returned in 1828 as promised. Most of the return visited centered on John Bell Jr., with whom the entity discussed the origin of life, civilization, Christianity, and the need for a major spiritual reawakening of particular significance were its predictions of civil war and other major events, some of which she missed. I feel like we are going through a civil war or proceed. We're 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 about to again. So maybe she's just. Well, this was this in eighteen twenties. Okay, but this is like eighteen twenties. Well, this is the twenty twenties. So you the know? entity bid bade farewell after three weeks, promising to visit John Bell's most direct descendant in a hundred and seven years. The year would be 1935, and the closest living direct descendant at the time was Nashville physician Dr. Charles Bailey Bell, a neurologist and John Bell Sr.'s great-grandson. In 1934, Dr. Bell published a book about the Bell Witch, likely to raise awareness of the spirit's impending return. The book contains the first-ever account of the alleged conferences between the entity and John Bell Jr. in 1828, the author's father, Dr. Joel Thomas Bell, had allegedly taken notes during the conferences and upon his death passed them down to him. Dr. Bell published no follow-up to his 1934 book. He died in 1945 and is buried at the Bellwood Cemetery in Adams, Tennessee. So, that's the story of the Bell Witch Tower. Or the Bell Witch. Well, I think that's fascinating. She was trying to, like, warn them. Like... She, I, she liked them. She liked that family. She just didn't like John and Betsy because they were heathens. And they stole her land. They did that. But the mama didn't But do I anything. didn't. Yeah. I left that part out. Yeah. They ended up stealing her land and she like vowed to like haunt their land or whatnot after she died. Right. And that's what she did. All right. So okay. yeah. We're well, just going <clears> to <throat> let little Sophie hop on here. Yeah. She's been MIA for a little bit. Mm-hmm. Hello, everybody. Welcome back to another cryptid episode. Uh, for Katie and my mom, it's the anniversary of mm-hmm. the one year. For me, it'll be in like a... Yeah, you started a little late. I started a little bit later than when the podcast did start. But I'll figure out when my anniversary is. And we will. <laughs> okay. <laughs> All right. The, today we're going to be talking about the Bucket Timma Monkey Man. The Bucket Timma Monkey Man. Yep. Commonly abbreviated as BTM or BTMM. It is a legendary creature 
It's said to inhabit Singapore, chiefly in the in the forested Bukit Timah region. The creature is often cited as a forest dwelling forest dwelling hominid or primate. Okay. And is also accounted for being immortal. Immortal. Yes. Interesting. Immortality has always confused me. Like so if you kill them, they just come back to life, or you they can never, like, die? I guess or it just they can depends. die, but they can come back to life? Or I like think it just means that they'll live forever unless someone kills them. Like so they'll never, like, die of old age unless, like, someone physically Correct. kills them. Okay, okay. Depends on the immortality, but yes, basically. However, its exact identity remains unknown, and its essence dissipated doc. In its essence, dissipated. Documentation of the BTM is sparse and scattered. The creature is largely considered a product of local folklore. Alleged sightings of the animal are rare. Records mainly come from Malay folklore. Come from Malay folklore. Accounts from Japanese soldiers in World War II and occasional unconfirmed reports from local residents. The first claim sightings is said to occurred in about 1805. The most recent was in 2007. The BTM is said to be a humanoid like grayish in color and between 1 and 2 meters, so 3 to 6 feet in height, with a bipedal gait. Alright, sightings of the BTM are rare, almost entirely contained within the the Bucket Tema region and its vicinity. The first report of the creature was was coming in 1805 when a Malay elder claimed to have seen an upright walking monkey-faced creature in the Bukitim era. Japanese soldiers also reported sightings of the creature during World War II, as said. In 2007, a series of sightings were reported in Singapore Tomoloid, the new paper has since featured the cryptid on its papers, gathering reports from a number of witnesses. The Chinese language Chin Min Daily News also reported the BTM in 2008, stating that the monkey man would appear after dark in the Bukitima Nature Reserve. The paper described the creature as a the face of a monkey, but walking upright like a man. So it could just be like a normal person. Yeah. It... It dispatched a journalist to comb for evidence, but the expedition proved futile. The Bucket Timma Nature Reserve official take provided at that point in time that it was people were mistaking the common long-tailed, aka crab-eating, macaque. They were mistaken for crab-eating monkeys. Crab-eating monkeys. For the monkey man. Okay. In late 2020... Mm-hmm. The bucket to my monkey man was allegedly spotted at, by a night hiker, an event which was extensively covered by local media reports. So, yeah. Is that it? Yeah, that's all I have on it. Because, like, it's also been proven false, so they don't really like. Oh, okay. Mm-hmm. But anyway, I hope you did enjoy today's uh, story, even though it was very short. Um. Anyway, happy anniversary for Thank y'all. You. So sweet. Um, I'm not really sure to say that now, so I'll say just bye. Go, say bye. Okay. <laughs> Goodbye, everyone. <laughs> Thank, Thank you, Sophie. Sophie. Thank you, Sophie.
And thank you guys for listening. And we hope that this was just as great as our first one. Because <laughs> I felt like... <laughs> uh, yeah. Good times. Yeah. So, thank you guys for listening. Yeah. And thank you guys for listening every week that do. Mm-hmm. We really appreciate all of you that really... Because there, I mean, there's some of you that really do listen to us every week. And it really is awesome. And, and every week, like, continuously and... Mm-hmm. Just and even those who listen sporadically, we like sporadic too. We like regular more, but sporadic's cool. Yeah. So sporadic, we're regular. Just we love you if you listen to us, yeah. and thank you for your continued support. And we hope that this next year, you know, we can start doing a lot more things. And you know, it's been our okay. Listen, let's take a, a moment to reflect on the first year of having a podcast. Let's yeah. just say that it was. A lot more than I think we really knew what we were getting into. I mean, we knew, but not at the same time. Like, yeah. we, like we knew it was going to be a lot, but we just didn't really know what was going to go into it. So we've got like the basics down. We have a better and understanding. Now, and now I feel like things have kind of chilled. There's a lot going on this year. And yeah. even though we got a new little baby coming, yeah, we'll work. We'll make it work. Yes. So don't, don't forget about us. Stay tuned. We're here. We're here. We'll be here. Disturbing along. And share with your friends. We really appreciate it. And if you'd like to follow us on our social medias, you can find us on Instagram at Literally Disturb Podcast. If you want to follow us on Twitter, we don't tweet, but there's a Twitter. <laughs> um, it's at Literally Pod, and we have a TikTok. It's Literally Disturb Podcast, I think. Yeah, I think it's just Literally Disturb. I don't know, but we don't really do. Oh, we're going to work on that. Stuff. We're going to work on that. Yeah, people send us videos. That's fun. Yeah. Um, But yeah, thank you guys for listening and we'll see you next week. See you next week. Bye. Bye.